So I got better at being able to tailor my story in a way that people could hear, maybe make it a little shorter or highlight just one thing. And I got better at not caring about other people's judgments too, because that holds us all back from advocacy and our children really need us to be advocates for them. Welcome to Wild Peace, a place where parents of kids who struggle can come together for camaraderie, inspiration, and support. If a child in your life faces learning and attentional challenges, developmental differences, or mental health concerns, this is for you. I'm your host, Kendra Wild. Hey friends, welcome. I'm so glad you're here today because our conversation is going to leave you feeling a little more empowered than when you pressed play. Just as background, did you know that more than 17 million children in the U.S. struggle with a diagnosable mental condition? I can't even picture that number. What's mind-blowing is that despite the magnitude of this problem, parents still have a hard time accessing services for their kids. And serious stigma persists. The silence around children's mental health leaves families feeling alone and even delays their seeking treatment. My guest today, Lisa Lambert, knows all this firsthand. When Lisa's son was just seven years old, he began showing signs of significant mental health needs. Lisa was thrown into a world of complexity she had never known. Today, her son is doing well, and she is the director of the Parent Professional Advocacy League, which provides education, advocacy, outreach, and support for families of children with mental health needs. In our conversation, Lisa shares some of the challenges she faced in those early years and describes how her experience transformed her into a dedicated advocate. We got to talk about some of the ways her organization is working to improve the system for other families. They capture feedback from parents and use that information to influence policies and practices. Who knew parent voices could harness the power of big data? I can't wait for you to know more. So here is Lisa Lambert. Hi, Lisa. Good morning. Hi, Kendra. Thank you for having me. It is a good morning. Yes, I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. I know I mentioned this before to you, but I followed your blog for years because you were ahead of me. And even though our parenting experiences were different, what you wrote about always really opened my eyes. And you were just so strikingly open about your son's struggles and so strong in your conviction that parents can really make a difference. And your words gave me a lot of confidence to find my voice as an advocate back when I was just trying to figure out how to help my son. So I'm so excited for other people to learn from you today. Oh, that's always good to hear. You never know if you're writing to an empty room or if you're writing to people who are really listening and getting it and understanding what your experience was too. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could start by just giving us a brief intro to yourself. Absolutely. So in my day job, 
I'm the director of a small nonprofit called Parent Professional Advocacy League, which is focused on children's mental health. And we do a lot of different things, but our primary focus is the families of children who have mental health needs, however the family defines that. Mm -hmm. And my personal life and what brought me to this is I'm the parent of two now adult children, now adult sons, the oldest of which, when he was seven years old, ended up first by saying, I'm not going to go to school, and was terrified to leave the house, which rapidly escalated mm. into him saying almost daily that he wanted to die. So we were catapulted into the mental health system. There was no, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It was clearly that he had some mental health issues that really needed addressing. And we went through various experiences mm. over the years, some which were really positive and some which absolutely amazed me, both in good ways and bad ways, that this kind of system was supposed to be helping children and their families. So each of those things led me on my path. I started volunteering, running support groups. Then I ended up being able to do that and receive, on a very part-time basis, receive some a salary or some money for doing that. That led my path into doing more policy work, because if you change things for one family, you change things for one family. And I wanted to change things for more families to where I am now. Mm -hmm. So let's go back again to those early years, just to get a little better idea of, of your experience. Like when you first got your son diagnosed, I think for a lot of people that time can be devastating, but it can also be really enlightening. Can you share about the first time you had him evaluated and give us just a little bit of background on that? We actually didn't have a clear diagnosis for a long mm. time. And he had what I called the morphing diagnosis. <laughs> you know, those videos where one face morphs into mm -hmm. the next. So he had dysthymia was his diagnosis when he was really little. And then maybe they said depression. And then they thought he had a mood disorder. But they also thought he might have some Asperger's because his social skills were really not there. They were processing diagnoses sort of thrown into the mix. And it seemed like every two or three years, somebody came up with a new diagnosis. Ugh. So the diagnosis was not a tool for us for a very long time in being able to understand what was going on. And actually what I tell parents now worked for me then is to kind of put things into buckets and kind of figure out, well, did he have a mood thing? Did his moods go up and down? Yes. Did he have some attentional problems or issues? Yes. Did he have some difficulty with insomnia? Yes. So for me, it was easier to look at these different buckets. We probably had five or six of them that I really wanted mm -hmm. to think about separately and think about whether what we were doing for his care was working on any of those things rather than this large thing called a diagnosis. The other thing is that many diagnoses come from looking at adults and they're really not tailored to what's going on with children. For instance, when I was looking at depression when he was a about seven or eight, it said things like loses all interest in romantic partners. Well, he was seven or eight. He didn't have a romantic <laughs> partner. Lose all interest in video games at times, yes, but at times he never did. So there were a lot of things that were sort of retrofitted to children that didn't really work. So we ended up talking, both he and his therapist and his teachers and just friends about it in a different way. And that worked better for us. That's so interesting. I love the idea of looking at a diagnosis as different buckets and just identifying the different challenges that you need to focus on instead of just using some catch-all diagnosis and not knowing where to go from there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So were you always open about his struggles with other people? 
Well, we started out by being very open. In fact, let me tell you a story. It's a story about stigma. Mm -hmm. When he was um, seven years old, he went into a psychiatric hospital for the first time. And he was in for about three weeks. And he was a little kid. He was uh, small and thin. He didn't like eating, so he was especially thin. But we were in a neighborhood where people had all moved in with children at more or less the same time. And he knew a lot of the kids in the neighborhood. So he comes home and he says to me, I'm going to go up and down the street and tell everybody that I was in the psych hospital, but I'm home and I want to play. And I said, oh, I don't know. And he said, well, at the hospital, Mm. they said, it's just like having a broken arm. So I'm going to just tell people it's just like having a broken arm. And now it's I'm better. So he ran around the neighborhood and he knocked on doors. Mm -hmm. You know, these are his friend's parents. And probably after he had made the rounds, maybe about, I don't know, five or 10 minutes, I got a call from a woman and she lived sort of catty corner across the street from us. And she had a little daughter, Denise, who they adored, who had been his playmate. And she said, I can't have my daughter play with your son ever again. I don't want him in my yard. He's not to ride his bicycle in my driveway. I don't want him to cut across the lawn. I can't have her exposed to someone like him. So that was a real dampening effect. I didn't know what to tell him. You know, I kind of cautioned him a little bit and said, I think we, you know, need to just keep this really close with people who who understand a little bit better. But it was a real change for me and how open I was for quite a number of years. Wow, that is intensely heartbreaking. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. did that affect it? How did that one person change your approach in how you faced stigma and how you thought about I guess having a the way that you tell his story and who you talk to? Well, it did for, as I said, quite a long time. I think stigma is a lot of different parts. We tend mm-hmm. to all think that if somebody like Michael Phelps comes out and tells their story, that it's going to educate people and they're going to feel differently. But people have some very deeply held stereotypes and beliefs. It's almost in this mm-hmm. case, like the mother thought that little girl, if she touched my son, would suddenly you know, contract mental health issues, which mm. is silly. I mean, it's not the way it happens, but it's hard harder to change minds for people who have deeply held beliefs for one reason or another. So I got better at being able to tailor my story in a way that people could hear, maybe make it a little shorter or highlight just one thing. And I got better at Mm. not caring about other people's judgments too, because that holds us all back from Mm -hmm. advocacy and our children really need us to be advocates for them. Yeah. So when you joined a support group, can you tell about your first support group? Sure. Well, when my son was little and we first began going through this, I lived in San Diego and I cast around for help a lot of different places and went to two or three different support groups. One was run by the school system and Mm -hmm. another was run by the Children's Hospital in San Diego. And one of the ones I went to had parents whose children all had different kinds of special needs. And some of them were farther along their journey. So they'd been doing this for two or three or four years. And other people were new like me and trying to figure out what do I do? How do I keep my head above water? Where do Mm -hmm. I put my energy and my focus? So one mom came over, I told my son's story. And at the time, I still believed that you are the kind of mom that you want to be. 
and that your child will sort of adapt themselves or uh, shape themselves to respond to your style of parenting. And I'm sure a lot of that still came through. So this mom came over to me and she talked about her own child and said, you know, we all end up being the parent that our child needs us to be, not the parent that we thought we would be, because that's the one that can make a difference for our child. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was a good lesson. It was a great lesson. And she was so kind and so compassionate. So I really heard it. Mm-hmm. And then you moved to Boston. Mm-hmm. And did you find another support group here that was just as helpful? Actually, I did not. I moved back here. My family lives in Boston. I'm from the Boston area and I needed family support. So that was wonderful. Uh, My son had grandparents. My other son, who's the sibling, also had grandparents who could give him time and attention Mm -hmm. because, as you know, so much of a family's time and attention goes to the child who has the greatest needs. And it's probably the thing that I struggled with the most was trying not to feel guilty about my other son who I felt was getting somewhat neglected because my oldest son had such intense and such all-encompassing needs. Mm -hmm. So someone came over to me at a meeting. I was at a meeting trying to learn. I was always trying to learn. And she came over and she was the first director of PAL, the Parent Professional Advocacy League's name is is PAL. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, I heard you have been in support groups that's great experience. Now you can run one. And she kind of of pushed (laughs) me to start a support group. That's great. And that's how I did. I felt very unprepared, but I also wanted to give forward, pay forward, give to others because so many people Mm -hmm. had really jumped in and really supported me. What was it about the groups that worked so well? Did you have a structure that made it really effective? I'm sure you had a good support group when you ran it. (laughs) (laughs) We had a fabulous group. I ended up doing two. And the first night for the first group, we had eight or nine people show up. And it was just a surprise. A lot of people don't have those kind of numbers right away. And so we had a a bunch of people who really wanted to make it successful. They were all strong-willed focused parents. They really knew that they wanted to be advocates for their children. Though, of course, we all go through times when you just need to sit and feel comforted. Everybody has these cycles where you feel your feelings sort of rotate through different stages. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that one of the keys to success was that people knew that they were there to really take what we all know, support one another, but also that we were going to try to figure out how we can pay it forward or take it out into the world. And people would come every week and talk about the little things, the thing they said to correct someone else's misperceptions or something Mm -hmm. that they did that kind of stretched things a little bit. Uh, We gave each other permission to do different things. I remember I talked about a special education meeting I was in and another mom said to me, I didn't know you could ask for that. So there was a lot of that kind of exchange Mm. where people deliberately learned from one another and also brought back things they thought other people would really benefit from. And I ran each group for about eight years. Wow. That must've been a lifeline for a lot of people. And it shows you that support groups of parents who all have a similar experience can really problem solve for each other and and share so much helpful information. I think parents are the best resource for other parents. Yeah. And I think that continues to be true, maybe even more true now that social media provides platforms. There's a lot of closed groups 
for parents. But also our research, we do a lot of surveys of families at my organization. It's sort of one of my brainchilds and one of my favorite things to do. And over the last several years, Mm -hmm. parents have consistently told us that they do less and less asking their provider for information or for advice sometimes, and more and more look to veteran parents, parents who are a few more steps or a few more years down the road, and ask them, what was it? What would you do with this? Or how did you find whatever it is they're looking for, whether it's a clinical support or a community support or information? And so parents are reporting. Other parents are the best resource available. Wow. How do you think social media has impacted support groups and advocacy and this sort of peer-to-peer information sharing? I think there are a number of Facebook groups that are focused specifically around this area of behavioral health. And that's Mm -hmm. really important for families because they feel like they can say things about their own experience, not just their child's experience. And that's the part that's missing a lot of times in the Mm -hmm. formal system is it's all about what's called the identified child. So parents go through a lot of different phases. Some days they feel like I just want to throw my hands up in the air and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. Other days they feel like they're so angry Mm -hmm. at the lack of support, understanding, or training that's available to them. Or they might just be angry because they're in the same situation. It doesn't seem to be getting any better. Other days, they are so excited about Mm -hmm. one small success and feel that people who have more typical children won't understand why they're so excited about that one small success. And all of those things, when they're shared with other people who are going through the same thing, they get a lot of comfort. They get a lot of recognition. They get a lot of applause. And it makes a huge difference to be able to carry on for one more day, one more week, Mm -hmm. one more month, or whatever is that it can really fuel you to do. Yeah, no doubt. It's fascinating to me that you're harnessing real parent experiences to influence policies and practices at PAL. Could you tell a little bit about some of the family-driven research that you're doing and why it's so impactful? Absolutely. So in about 2001, we did our first survey. Someone came to me and he said to me, you guys do good work. Why don't we ask families together how to describe their access to services? And that's a hot topic for families, just as hot a topic today as it was 18 years ago, because that's where people struggle. They're Mm -hmm. trying to find the right service, the most effective service. And it's always a lot of what I want to say, confusion or lack of precision or whatever about that. So we did our first survey and we got 300 and something families to respond. And we learned a lot about reaching out to families. So we began doing other surveys. And over the years, we've surveyed families about everything from integrated care to what kind of training they need, how they feel about electronic health records, their experiences with juvenile justice, like going to court. We've surveyed youth as well about their thoughts and experiences. And we've also surveyed families about medications. A couple of years ago, I had a great intern and we did what we called a pop-up survey. So we revisited topics like medications and stigma, and we did this quick survey, sort of like you have a pop-up restaurant or a pop-up you know, Halloween store. And we did this short survey that was less than 20 questions. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to see how much the answers, people's thoughts had stayed the same. So families are often say a lot of interesting things. We, we do structured surveys where we ask questions. 
we always ask the same set of what's called demographic questions at the beginning. We ask them how old their child is, what kind of health insurance they have. Mm -hmm. We might ask them, are there other children in the family? And we can compare over the years because we always ask the same questions. And then we ask them a set of questions about the topic. And then the mm -hmm. last question is open-ended. And we say, what else would you like to tell us? And people respond in droves. A researcher told me that when you ask an open-ended question like that, you usually get about a 5% response rate. We get a 50% response rate from families. Wow. And they say things like, your survey gave me a roadmap to be able to ask questions of my son's provider, teacher, or whatever. They say, thank you, because no one has ever asked me before. No one has ever asked families these questions before. And they might also just talk about other things that are going on in their lives that might or might not relate to the topic of the survey. I want to go back, if it's okay, and talk a little bit about the demographic questions real quick. Sure, yeah. Okay. So one of the things that we do is we ask people to describe themselves. And we say, are you the parent of a child with behavioral health needs, special needs, no special needs? And about 10% of the families say, my child has no special needs. Then later on mm -hmm. in the survey, we ask, does your child receive special education services? Does your child go to therapy? Has your child on any kind of, you know, psychiatric medications? And of those 10%, about 95% say yes, if not to all three, then at least two of those questions. So wow. while they still feel they do not want to say their child has behavioral health or any special needs, they are saying that their child has been identified as needing those things, special education or therapy or medication. And so we always find that interesting. Hmm. And that has been consistent over 15 years that we see that over and over again. Yeah. I wonder why certain people just don't identify with the term special needs and yet everything that is happening in their lives would qualify as special needs. Exactly. Hmm. Well, they say that they don't want to have their child labeled. They yeah. don't like the stigma of talking about those things. And it's easier to say that my child gets this service or I've gotten these services for my child than to describe the child in a certain way as a special needs child or a child with mental health needs. I get that. I'm just really fascinated by the idea that you're seeing a lot of the same concerns coming up year after year. And I'd love to hear what those headlines are. The number one is access to services. Families say again and again that they wait for days and weeks and sometimes even months in order to get certain kinds of services. Psychiatrists for sure, mm -hmm. medication management appointments, therapy. It depends on where you live, but frequently people wait a long time for therapy because many of the therapists out there don't specialize in children or many of the therapists out there that do specialize mm -hmm. in children don't take young children like my child that was seven. They see children who are 14 and older, for instance. So it's really, really hard for families to access the service that they need. And you probably heard this a, a bunch of times, but insurance companies tend to give people a long list to call. And we hear that experience again and again of people calling through 13, 14, 15 names and having everyone say, I'm not taking patients. I don't I'll work with children or something along those lines. One parent even told me that three people on her list were deceased. Mm -hmm. I was talking about this with a legislator one time and saying, you know, there's all this national brouhaha about deceased people voting. What a scandal that is. Shouldn't it be a scandal that an insurance company is offering you a deceased therapist to work with their child? Oh my gosh. 
Wow. So that's access to services. And I suppose that has to do with hospitalization too. It does. It does. There are long, Um, long waits mm -hmm. for many families who um, are seeking to have their child be inpatient. And some children need to be inpatient. Sometimes they don't need to be inpatient right away. But if you're waiting for three months for a therapy appointment, then things can get worse during that period of time. So the two things aren't unrelated. They're all linked linked together. Mm -hmm. What else are you learning in the surveys? I was going to say, and speaking of social media, we often receive live texts or emails from parents who are sitting in an emergency room waiting for their children, asking about what should I do here? Do you know if any place that has openings? So people are using social media in a way that they didn't even five years ago to try to advocate for their children. Wow, that's fascinating. Absolutely. What other headlines are you coming up with from these surveys in addition to access? Well, one of the things that's always been interesting to me is that even though there's a lot of negativity about, for instance, medications, Mm -hmm. parents have less negative feelings about medications, I think, than a lot of people who are on the outside looking in. Because many parents have children, for instance, like Mm. mine, I would have tried any medication that would have kept my child from making one more suicide attempt. That's what I would have done. It would, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have hesitated. And people are in situations with their children where their children can't go to school. There might be explosive at home. They might be self-harming. They might be a, a lot of different things. And they're so worried and they want to see their child get better. And if a medication comes in and it works, parents are often really, really grateful for that. That's not to say that they don't worry about side effects. They do. That's not to say that they don't worry about long-term effects. They do. But sometimes you need a place in the storm that's quiet so other things can work, like therapy can work or school program can work. Mm -hmm. And medication can be the thing that provides that. Yeah. And I'm not promoting medication. Yeah. And that just shows you when you're in that lived experience, there's no judgment here. You're doing the best you can. And if medication is one of the therapeutic interventions Mm -hmm. worth trying, you do what you need to do. It definitely is. And we're big believers that it should be in conjunction with therapy or whatever else. It shouldn't be always a standalone, which is the way it's often presented. Mm -hmm. And parents tend to say that all the time, that if the medication can be combined with something else and gradually you can use less medication, more of the other thing, that that's what their preference is. But it's interesting. They're much more open to using that as a tool. They're much more open to using anything, I think, as a tool than a lot of times the mental health workforce, which might be times a little bit more resistant to new approaches. And what are parents saying about stigma? I like to think that the younger generations are becoming much more open about talking about mental health, but I'm not sure if that's just Mm -hmm. my perception. Well, you know, it's interesting. We recently hired somebody in our office and the candidates who came and interviewed for the position were all in their 20s. And when we ask for someone to come and work with us, we want them to have a connection, usually through lived experience, to mental health, especially to children's mental health. Mm -hmm. And all three people said that they'd grown up with a father, mother, brother, sister, grandfather, grandmother, who, for instance, had substance use or a major mental health issue. And they were so open about it, which we didn't see even five years ago. It was a a real, real change, a real Mm. shift. On the other hand, I think that there are certain groups of parents who fear stigma or feel stigma has gotten worse. We did a survey about a year and a half ago. It was called Culture, Care, and Challenges, and we're in the middle of writing the report right now. And we oversampled families of color 
deliberately to find out how their race, ethnicity, whether or not they were a churchgoer, whether or not they had been here for a long time, their families, or they were new to the United States, affected how they saw stigma. And when we broke out the results, families who are white families tended to say that they thought stigma was lessening, whereas families of color tended to believe stigma was getting worse. So that was a really interesting finding. We have a chance that would be great to follow up on. All we can do right now is say that's what they told us. We don't know exactly what their underlying, you know, thinking was or what the underlying stories were, but it was quite attention grabbing to see that. Yeah. What are some of the issues that really keep your fire burning now? What are you guys focusing on over at PAL? We're focusing on a number of things, and I've got to say a lot of it can be tied into some of the family-driven research as well. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to data just really, really quickly. We also collect data in a lot of other ways. We collect data like the number of calls we get per year, the top issues of parents who are calling, those kinds of things. I'm interested to hear, are you getting more calls over the years? Absolutely. So we get about 2,500 to 3,000 calls and emails for assistance from families every single year. And the top three issues are always some sort of school issue. It could come from the place of wanting to know how to access school services. How do I write a letter? How do I ask for an evaluation? And then there's the discipline issues. My child was sent home. My child was told not to come back till he got his behavior under control. My son or daughter is so afraid to go to school. I don't know what to do. Those kinds of issues. Those are always in the top tier. The second one is people ask a lot about how do I access my health benefit? They know they have insurance. Many parents pay a lot of money every month for their health insurance. And then when they need to use it for their child, they can't seem to get what they need. And so we do some coaching about that. What does your health insurance benefit offer you and how can you get what your child needs? And a third issue that emerges is emerging more because we're doing more work in this is if your child has any kind of encounter with law enforcement, it could be just being stopped by police. It could be a school resource officer. It could be a lot of different things. So we collect data around that as well. Mm-hmm. And I will say we use the data from families in a very targeted way as much as we can. About a year ago, the Department of In- or the Division of Insurance was looking at the mental health benefit for uh, private insurance, commercial insurance, as people often call it, and wanted to know, are parents in Massachusetts trying to get their kids on Medicaid because their commercial insurer does not offer a robust enough or good enough or a more varied enough benefit? So we did a quick survey and we told parents that it was going to be like a petition. You know, you come outside of your grocery store and it's getting to be election day and you sign a petition, you Hmm. put out your name and your address and you say, I'm in favor of this. And so we set it up like that. Hmm. And we had uh, about 70 families give us their name and address and said, yes, I've tried to access or I have successfully accessed Medicaid for my child because my private insurance doesn't allow a therapist to come to my home. My child won't leave my home. I can't get a family to family support, which is something that I need. And they named what it was. So we organized the survey into a petition that said, we, the undersigned, do petition the division of insurance and had it all listed out. And we went to the hearing, almost every health insurance plan zoomed over and said, is there somebody, you know, who's a member of my health plan on there? Hmm. We said yes. And they wanted to see it. So it had quite the impact, quite the dramatic impact. That's awesome. I mean, awesome in that it could have an impact. Not awesome that you Mm -hmm. found such disturbing information. (laughs) Wow. 
Yeah. Our middle name, Parent Professional Advocacy League, we're advocates. And so we try and think how we can use family voice and family experience to make the system a little bit better. Mm-hmm. It's so positive and empowering, too, for people to realize that their voice matters and their experience matters and that when you do speak up, you can you can make a difference. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of exciting. There's always new areas. And I think that the state here and the federal government, too, are more and more accustomed to hearing from families. And they don't wonder, well, is that true data? They just accept that it is. Mm-hmm. That's good. So after your whole experience here, I'm thinking about you went from those early days that were really terrifying all the way till now where you're you're running an advocacy league. How have you changed from this this experience and this journey you've been on? Well, you know, Kendra, I was the young woman in college who I didn't really want to put up my hand because I didn't want everybody to look at me while I answered a question. Mm. So now we would say social anxiety. I'm not sure I knew what to call it at that point. And it mm-hmm. was difficult for me to be the person who stood up in front of people and spoke. And of course, that's what I do a lot of times. And I think back to that mom who said to me that you have to be the parent your child needs you to be. I had to learn to be an advocate. And I tell people a lot of times that one thing that distinguishes advocacy as a, an activity is you do it publicly. You either do it publicly through writing and you put your mm. name to it, or you stand up in front of a room and you say things. Or even when I was at that support group, leading the support group, everyone would turn around and look at me mm-hmm. and I would say, and this is what I think would really help. This is what I think I would try if I were you. And so People are looking at you and they're taking it in and they're silently agreeing with you or they're silently thinking, "Mm, tell me more. I'm not so sure I agree with you. Mm. And it's a very public activity. And so that's one way it's really, really changed me. I mentioned before you stop caring about people's approval. You have to have a sense of rightness within your being that says this is the right thing to do. And you also have to play the long game because some of the things Mm -hmm. that we do, you know, now will take effect or have an impact two or three years down the road. We were involved in a federal class action lawsuit, which created services in Massachusetts called the Rosie D lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And um, it took a long time to recruit families to be part of that lawsuit. And then after the judge made a decision, it took a couple of years before the services mm-hmm. were put into play. And then as the services have gone forward, it's taken even more time to kind of get them right. So some things that you start don't necessarily benefit your child. And you have to understand that, you know, you're going to do the best you can for your child. But it's also really satisfying to help the children and the families who are coming up after you. And then just want to say one more thing. My oldest son, who I began doing the advocacy for and began really Mm -hmm. supporting and loving and advocating for, he looks at me now and he says, tell me that again. And I say, advocacy is the family business, right? Mm. And he says, I'm okay with that. Oh, that's nice. I was going to ask you how he feels about this new role that you've taken on that sort of came from, was inspired by him. (laughs) He enjoys it. I will say, and this is something that comes up with a lot of families, with um, behavioral health issues, there's more stigma than there is if I was talking about my child who had, I don't know, a more straightforward medical diagnosis. So Mm -hmm. I write about him and I write about our experiences fairly often and it gets read 
fairly widely, I think. And I don't use his name. So our agreement is for me to say my son, but not use his name. And we have different last names. And so that gives him a measure of privacy, Mm -hmm. even though in the age of social media, certainly there's a lot less privacy than we think, but that's a way that I can sort of respect his boundary right there. And parents have a lot of sort of grappling to do with how much of our story is our child's story and how much can we tell. And everybody comes to a different decision, I think, themselves. Yes. For me, we had a lot of conversations, my son and I, and we've reached this place where I talk about a lot of things, but I also talk about how it affected me or how it resulted in something that was better, maybe for him or for for the system or something. And he is okay with all of that. It's really funny. He has a girlfriend now and she loves to read the blogs and tell him, that's what you were like when you were eight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how nice that you can look back and and see it that way now. <laughs> I have a couple of questions that are really tied into what I'm focused on at Wild Peace, which part of it is self-care. And I want to know, how did you cope during the crises? How do you take care of yourself even now with all that you're doing? Self-care is one of those things that... Uh, I know it's got a stigma itself. <laughs> it does. It was at the beginning when people said, you know, you can't pour out of a pitcher that's empty and the seatbelt analogy, you know, fasten your own mm-hmm. seatbelt first. I used to sort of do a mental eye roll because I couldn't figure out how I could yep. ever fit it in. But, you know, you think at the beginning that you're child's issues, troubles are going to go away rather quickly. And then you find out that's not the case and it stretches out and, you know, here you are and you're thinking, now what am I going to do, you know, to pull on, you know, the resources, my internal resources, which I'm depleting rapidly. Mm -hmm. I'm a fan myself of what I call the micro break. So I have a cup of coffee, sometimes not even all of it. And I might get to read one thing because reading for me is a, is a great thing. Or I have dogs. I might be able to do a short walk with the dog, or I might be able to just even pet them. And I count that mentally as something that renews me, Mm -hmm. not as a chore. So that's a a really good thing. I know other people use more physical kind of methods, you know, a massage or a bath. For me, what works is to have my focus completely go away from the work I'm doing or the advocacy I'm doing for my child and to just completely focus on, on something else. Mm -hmm. They say actually that if you focus on something else that engages your mind, that it's a bigger break than just resting. Exactly. You know, like whether you're doing Sudoku or, or learning something new, that's great. So, and my other question that I have to ask before we wrap up is what advice would you give parents who are on a similar path, who are, are right now either in the beginning of it or in the thick of it, just trying to get their bearings? What do you wish you had known? I wish there was somebody who I could have reached out to. So someone can either call us, and we have a lot of resources at ppal.net, or reach out to another family organization. And a family organization, their staff are parents who are parenting children with special needs, and they get it. And they get that it's not easy and it's not going to be accomplished in, you know, a month. And so they give you a lot of good perspective as well as a lot of resources and tips. So that's really important. And then the other thing that's really important um, is to 
measure success in a totally different way. So maybe your success is to go to the meeting, maybe the special ed meeting, the treatment meeting and say the one thing that you really believe is important to get on the record. And you don't measure success as the IEP is completely written that day or it changed everybody's mind because that way you can rack up little successes and that makes you feel like you have some momentum mm-hmm. going because a lot of us feel stuck. We feel like we're in the same place and nothing's really moved forward. So to be able to measure success as the little tiny things that you do, and it might be something with your child. It might also just be something with the system that you accomplished. And you can say, good job. I did that. Mm-hmm. I really like that. So tell people how they can find you again. Absolutely. So if you go on our website, ppal.net, you'll find resources, you'll find our phone numbers. And we have people who do family support. You can call them anytime and they'll give you a call back if you don't reach them that day. Make sure to say it's urgent if it is. And uh, there's a you know, a list of support groups around the state. There's also links to some of our national organizations. And there's organizations like PAL in almost every state. Mm, great. Wow. Thank you, Lisa. I'll put that up on my um, website too, under the show notes from this episode of the podcast. But thank you so much for your time and for being here today and sharing your perspective. And it's really inspiring just to hear the impact you're having on so many families and the good work you're doing in the world. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Wild Peace, a podcast created to bolster parents of kids who are struggling with mental health, learning issues, developmental differences, and more. If you'd like to suggest a guest or share your story, we would love to hear from you. Go to wildpeace.org, that's W-I-L-D-P-E-A-C-E dot org, to leave suggestions, see show notes from this episode, and explore more resources. You can also leave a message at 617-433-8582. Since this is a podcast, we especially love hearing your voice. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Just scroll down to those five purple stars and click. Your positive reviews will ensure that more parents who could use some wild peace can find us. This show is a production of Wild Peace for Parents, a nonprofit dedicated to helping parents find calm and build resilience. Because child well being starts with parent well being.